and welcome to the Stem Cell Report. I'm Martin Perra, the Editor-in-Chief of Stem Cell Reports, the open access journal of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Over the 10-year history of Stem Cell Reports, the journal has published nearly 2,000 papers and counting across the breadth of stem cell research. As the journal continues to celebrate a decade of publishing impactful science, this podcast will look at highlights from the latest advances in stem cell research appearing in the journal. We'll be speaking to authors to explore the questions that led to new breakthroughs and learn how they've tackled those questions. We'll hear about the background to novel findings, the challenges ahead, and we'll get to know a little bit about the personalities behind the work. Thanks for listening in. Over the past 10 years, we've seen an exponential increase in the application of organoid technology across the biomedical sciences, addressing a vast diversity of topics, ranging from the evolution of the human brain to the production of snake venoms in vitro. Derived from either pluripotent or tissue stem cells, organoids are three-dimensional structures intended to model functional or developmental aspects of in vivo organs. They are also being used to model complex physiological systems in the context of organ-on-a-chip devices and in assembloids, the combination of organoids from different tissues. Organoids are particularly useful to model and understand aspects of human biology and pathology. This approach has led to much hope and indeed proof of principal findings that these structures can serve as human avatars to advance the discovery of personalized therapies and serve as better models for drug discovery. However, the rapid pace of advances and the influx of researchers from diverse scientific backgrounds presents challenges in an immature field, especially when there are no widely accepted standards. Standards, which are important to any scientific endeavor, help to ensure that the research is rigorous and reproducible. Our guest today will talk about some of those challenges, the areas when standards are critically important and how they will help advance the field. They are the authors of the recently published review, Organoids Are Not Organs, Sources of Variation and Misinformation in Organoid Biology. I'm delighted to welcome professors Melissa Little and Kim Jensen. Melissa is the CEO and Executive Director of the Novo Nordisk Foundation Center for Stem Cell Research Medicine, or RENEW, the Chief Scientist at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and leader of the Kidney Regeneration Laboratory all in Melbourne, Australia. Melissa is a former president of the International Society for Stem Cell Research and holds an honorary position as professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Kim Jensen is professor at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark and deputy director at the Nova Nordis Foundation Center for Stem Cell Medicine. He is also a scientific advisory board member of the Loon Stem Cell Center, and he participated in the development of the recently released ISSCR standards document. Welcome to you both, and thanks for being here. Hi, Martin. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Martin. It's a pleasure. So first, thanks to you both for publishing this thoughtful piece with Stem Cell Reports. It's, it's a timely contribution um, given the recent release of the research standards document from the ISSCR and indeed the recent publicity surrounding what one might regard as a special type of organoid, the human embryo model. Uh, Melissa, I remember your first embarking on the quest to build a kidney from stem cells some years ago when you were working at the University of Queensland in Brisbane and coming from a, really a developmental biology background. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how it led you to organoid research. 
Yeah, Martin, I remember that time too. That's really when we met. It's It's been a, a really long journey, but I, perhaps a journey that's not too different to other developmental biologists. I, I actually did start my career looking at the molecular basis of a childhood cancer of the kidney. And the gene that was involved was a tumor suppressor WT1. And the, it was the exquisite pattern of expression of that gene in the developing kidney that made me think, wow, this is really interesting. How do organs form? And, you know, 30 years of research into looking at the molecular and cellular basis of how you get a kidney, then you start to say, okay, what can I do with this? And kidneys don't regenerate after birth. And so really it was about can we recreate a kidney by using and applying what we understand in development? And this is really what has been a major driver uh, of the application of pre-point stem cells is just that wanting to apply your developmental biology to see if you can actually generate that tissue over again. Thanks, Melissa. And indeed, the, the, this field has been very fortunate the, at the influx of great scientists from the developmental biology field. I think it's been critical. Um, Kim, you, you began your career uh, after doing research, I believe, on antibody technology is in, stem, in stem cell biology, at least as a postdoctoral in Fiona Watts' lab studying basic mechanisms in epidermal stem cell regulation. Tell me, today, is your research balanced between basic and applied studies, and is it easy to do justice to both? So, uh, yeah, thank you, Martin, for that question. So I've always done my utmost to relate our research questions to clinical issues, expecting that, uh, you know, if we begin to understand how tissues are organized and maintained, uh, this might actually provide us with greater insights into disease phenotypes and potentially how new therapies could be developed. since my involvement in the Novo Nordisk Foundation Center for Stem Cell Medicine, we've been given the opportunity to actually take uh, additional important steps towards applied studies and clinical implementation. Uh, with regard to uh, how to justify this, I think that, you know, in my team, we have a number of projects that address fundamental research questions in epithelial stem cell biology. Uh, but here, here we're mostly focusing on tissue regeneration in the intestine. Uh, and we expect that some of these ongoing projects will indeed pivot towards translational outcomes. However, we only know that when, when we reach the endpoint. Uh, but in addition, we have more, we have projects that are much more mature, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, where we are in the process of specifying actual products that we hope that will at some point be able to go into man. Uh, so I think, you know, it's very easy to justify both, you know, without one, you won't have the other. That sounds like a fantastic environment for young trainees. It's, it's really good to hear. Um, so now this is sort of for both of you, uh, Melissa and Kim, uh, as you highlighted in, in your review, Organoids derived from tissue stem cells and from pluripotent stem cells have a common name, but there are significant differences, of course, between them. Uh, Kim, you you work with epithelial tissue and utilize tissue stem cell-derived organoids. Why don't we start with you? And and then, Melissa, you can talk about the pluripotent stem cell-derived organoids and their unique features. Yes. So, you know, obviously, uh, we all work with... uh, a uh, group of cells or groups of cells in vitro. uh, And due to the fact that they resemble structures that can be observed in vivo, these have been 
coined organoids uh, from the tissue specific side of things, you know, it's relatively easy to grow a structure. It has become relatively easy to grow a structure since the advent of uh, R bonding and now also high grade winch, which seems to be uh, one essential component for uh, growing uh, tissue specific stem cells. Um, indeed, uh, one of the key questions that we always have to ask ourselves is that just because we're growing something from a from a tissue, what does it actually allow us to address? You know, what are we what are we modeling? Are we simply modeling that we can grow cells in an in vitro context uh, as as a, as a ball of cells, or does it actually reflect something that has relevance in in vivo? And I think this is one of the key questions that people need to remember to ask themselves uh, when using these models. Melissa, how about the pluripotent cell? How, how do they differ from from the the adult tissue derived? Well, I think they're different in really fundamental ways. And it is kind of interesting that we use the same word for such different approaches. And I guess that what's the commonality? We're trying to model uh, a human tissue. Um, but, you know, when you're starting with a pluripotent stem cell, you're starting with a cell that can adopt any lineage in principle. It's not a tissue-drive cell that's just recapitulating regeneration. You know, these pluripotent stem cells don't exist in adult tissues for a good reason. Um, but but we can strip them back. We can strip back any adult cell back to this pluripotent state and then get it to re-adopt a particular lineage. But that means you can go in many, many directions, and the challenge, unlike the adult ones, is not pointing it in a direction because the adult stem cell um, organoids go to the direction of the tissue they come from. It's actually trying to get them to make one tissue and not multiple tissues and not making random stuff. And I think we really have to remember that, you know, while we add some factors into a dish to a pluripotent stem cell and we convince ourselves we're guiding it to, towards a particular endpoint, you know, based on our understanding of early patterning, um, there's big problems. They don't mature. So you get a model that is really quite immature compared to a lot of the adult organ tissues. And more importantly, you know, just adding factors to a dish is nowhere near as perfect at patterning as the embryo is. And so we've got to be really careful at overinterpreting what we see. We are potentially imperfect in our protocols. We're potentially getting multiple cell types in there that we don't want. And we're potentially making transi transitional cell states that don't even exist in vivo. And so it's really, really important not to drink your own Kool-Aid, but to critically ask, am I sure I know what I have in that dish? And it's much more critical, I think, in the pluripotent stem cell-derived organoid field. Thanks, Melissa. So that does bring us to the issue of standards. And, and uh, Kim, uh, you know, while there are these differences between organoids from, from the two sources, uh, in your review, you, you point out there's some common challenges, particularly around standardization. Can, can you highlight some of the, the challenges your field is facing at the moment in, in regards to standards? Just to, to second what, 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 what Melissa said is that, you know, when, when, when we would like to model a disease, uh, modeling a disease is is will require complex interactions between different cell uh, cell types uh we need to ensure that those cell types are present 
for it actually to make sense to model one specific disease. Uh, but maybe one of the biggest uh, hurdles or challenges uh, is around variation. Uh, variation between experiments with the same stem cell derivatives, between organ organoid lines derived from different individuals. Uh, you know, if we see variation, what does that variation reflect? Does it reflect that uh, uh, you and I are different, Martin? Or does it reflect that, 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 that I'm more probable to get getting a specific uh, disease compared to you? Uh, so I think, I think this is one of the key, key, uh, key problems here. Uh, or challenges that 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 we need to we need to ensure that what we're working with is reproducible and that we begin to understand uh, where variation is stemming from. You know, it could be obviously uh, the cell type it, uh, that 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 we start out with. It could be the growth factors, batch variation, the concentrations is added in given in a given lab uh, and the timing uh, upon which such a such an addition uh, is made obviously when we go into more complex models such as the uh, the microphysiological models uh, we we have a, a whole array a range of different uh, parameters that can vary which can even influence the system in 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 in, in more diverse manners Martin, can I just make a comment about this because I completely sec second all of this, but one of the really big traps that I'm seeing is that people take A versus B and they compare them and they say, oh, they're different, um, and they assume that if A is a patient and B is a control, that those differences are related to disease. That's absolutely not true. And, and we fall into this trap again and again, and we have to be really careful about how we do this. Well, well, thanks for that comment. We recently ran a workshop uh, called Diversity in a Dish at the Jackson Labs, and it was about uh, using these types of systems to, to understand genetic diversity. And the points that both of you make are incredibly important if we're going to uh, uh, use stem cells to do functional genomics uh, in, in human. Uh, Melissa, lately there's been some discussion, as, as the world knows, in the scientific and lay press around human embryo models. And taking you back to your developmental origins, um, some have even contended that a, an actual human embryo model from stem cells might ultimately be the best source of organs and tissues for transplantation. But as we know, obviously, we can make organoids from stem cells without going through the full process of embryogenesis in a dish. So do you think there might be any potential advantage in replicating in full the process of embryonic development in 3D culture to derive tissues for transplantation? Tough question, but interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, well, I think I think my first comment is just to remind listeners again that these are models. Just as we've said, organoids are not organs. These are models of the human embryo. They are not human embryos. And we really have to remember that. And I think, you know, we can gain a lot by investigating such models, a deeper understanding of early lineage decisions, of early switches between pluripotency and less potent. Uh, and they may be really important in uh, getting a better handle on some forms of infertility, such as failure to implant. Um, but your question is really whether we need a model like this in order to be able to generate tissue transplantation. And we already know that the answer to that is no. 
Um, and you know, while while I caution overstating the accuracy of any given organoid model, um, you know, compared to the in vivo tissue, there's already really clear examples where we've generated very pure cell types from even from pluripotent stem cells that are clinically approved to go into man. For example, the dopaminergic neurons at Marlon Palmer and Agneta Kirkaby are now putting it to patients. They've gone very carefully into characterizing that they have uh, dopaminergic neurons. Uh, and I think there's a growing number of, of pluripotent stem cell derivatives like that reaching clinical trial without having to pass through a model of an early human embryo. You know, you can look at it a different way and say everything passes through some portion of a model of early embryo because if you take a pluripotent cell and you get it to gastrulate to make mesoderm, then that's a portion of modelling as some part. But we don't stop and form an intact model of a human embryo, nor do I think we need to. What we need to do is ask, what is the product I'm trying to make and how can I best improve my differentiation protocol to make the genuine artifact and not the genuine artifact plus a bunch of other stuff I don't want. So I would I would reject this argument. Well, that's a pretty clear answer. So, so thank you for that. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this whole area unfolds. But but the message I'm hearing from you is that um, uh, these human embryo models are great for answering certain questions about development and related human health problems but not really necessary to build uh, uh, tissues or organs for transplantation. We're gonna take a quick break and when we return, we'll continue our discussion. Stem Cell Reports is ISSCR's open access peer-reviewed society journal for scientists by scientists. The journal publishes research and commentaries that drive the field of stem cell science forward. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Report. We've been talking with Melissa Little and Kim Jensen about their research with organoids and their recent review on the need to improve standards applied to research using organoid models. Uh, Kim, you you were a member of the Standards Task Force for the recently released ISSCR Standards for Human Stem Cell Use and Research. I believe that your group that looked at standards for disease models, including organoids, probably had some of the more lively discussions amongst the task force teams. Tell me about some of the specific issues your team dealt with and and tell us if there's a need for ongoing review of standards in the organoid and microphysiological systems field, which are still evolving. Yeah, thank you for that question, Martin. We we indeed had some uh, great discussions when reviewing the standards for disease models. so I, I believe that uh, these discussions, they to a great extent, were spurred by the, the actual diversity in the group uh, as we were a mix of researchers uh, coming both from uh, the field of organoids derived from tissues as well as from pluripotent stem cells. Uh, in general, I have to say there was a very strong consensus around the standards that have been developed. Uh, but uh, I would like to emphasize on, on, on a couple of aspects. Firstly, uh, it's important that uh, we as researchers need to be better at asking what are our replicates uh, and what do they represent? Is it the fact that uh, we're looking at uh, or comparing two organoids in the same well uh, and those are somehow replicates of, of, of each other or, or are we comparing this well by well from the same differentiation study or are we actually 
deriving from different uh, different lines or different individuals. Um, at least this should be clearly stated and described within the papers uh, that people are trying to publish. Um, this would then also allow people to assess how reproducible a given phenotype is between uh, different differentiation studies and also different individuals. And obviously, it's significantly easier to derive organoids from accessible tissue such as the intestinal epithelium that, that I work with. And we can generate organoids from a number of different patients, whereas I, I, I do agree that generating iPSC lines from a range of individuals can be significantly more burdensome. Uh, and I think the standards have been developed in a way that would allow everyone to actually go out and, and, and address key questions within the stem cell arena. And secondly, I think there was also a lot of discussion around to what extent patient material, uh, including genomic sequences, can be made uh, available depending on different uh, jurisdictions uh, that people are working in. Uh, so there can be a limitation in the availability of material and thereby also influence the ability for others to fully reproduce results within the literature. Uh, and uh, this is obviously something that's ongoing and, 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 and I think indeed uh, we should uh, continuously be going back to these uh, standards in order to review whether they are actually uh, appropriate for, for, for this day and age. Thanks. I, as a journal editor, I appreciate the efforts of your group. Uh, these are issues we we that do come up from time to time uh, with authors and reviewers. Uh, Melissa, part of the purpose of standards is to improve the rigor and reproducibility of research, uh, but also standards can strengthen the pipeline of, of therapies getting to patients. Um, and as the CEO and executive director of the Nova Nordisk Foundation Center for Stem Cell Medicine, uh, tell us a little bit about the mission of that foundation and how it aims to accomplish that mission. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very pleased to be able to talk about Renew. That's what we call our centre. Uh, it's its full name is Nova Nordisk Foundation Centre for Stem Cell Medicine, but we call it Renew, uh, and it's it's international uh, and it's what we would call targeted. Uh, and we have a mission. We're hoping to actually deliver stem cell-driven therapies to transform the lives of people with incurable disease and in a multiple of ways, stem cell models to improve the development of new drugs, uh, stem cell uh, therapies where we're putting cell into man and gene-modified cell products. So, you know, we're looking at the full gamut of what we've talked about as possible outcomes from stem cells for a long time, but we really hope to be able to drive that through. We're really fortunate to be funded by the Nova Nordisk Foundation, which is a philanthropic trust in, in Denmark, uh, who has also has a mission on transforming science-based discoveries into solutions in health. So they're very passionate about this as an area. And we are really quite unique because Renew has stem cell teams in Denmark, in Australia, and in the Netherlands. Everything we do is based on fundamental research excellence. So the majority of what we fund is high-quality underpinning stem cell biology because I don't believe we'll ever make a good product unless the science is good. So standards are very important to us, and we need to be rigorous about our science. But we also actively help our researchers to take their science and ask questions with it. What can my science potentially do? What product can I develop? What disease can I focus on? And we reward them for doing that. We support them for doing that. And we build an ecosystem around them that allows them to collaborate, 
to exchange and to focus their research towards those outcomes. And, and we, we have an interesting model that not only are we pivoting our scientists to targeted research, but we have a social science team that works alongside them. Uh, so integrated into the teams, we have researchers looking at the ethical, the social, the economic and the regulatory barriers to delivering products in demand, for example, in rare disease, where we may aspire to develop a product, will we ever be able to commercialise it from an economic point of view? These are really important questions that go hand in hand with the research. So I think it's really a remarkable opportunity. And in many ways, we're not doing anything different to other stem cell biologists. We're just doing it together in an interesting way. And I'm really excited to see the growing number of intersections that are, that are happening between the three nodes. And I'm really excited to see where it takes us. Thanks, Melissa. And, uh, you know, it's it's a fantastic experiment, re really kind of unique in, in many respects. And it's fortunate to have the two of you involved. Uh, uh, we'll come back to the challenges of, of leading something like that in a little bit. Uh, but, but Kim, kind of further on from that, uh, this particular model of industry and academia partnering together to address unmet medical needs is a bit of a shift in the culture over the past decade or more. But but certainly here in the United States, we, we hear more and more about talented postdoctorals who are really opting out of the traditional academic pathway to go into biotech or pharma for all sorts of reasons that are understandable. But do you think it's possible, though, to have the best of both worlds as, as maybe your consortium might permit and kind of as you, you described for your own lab? Yeah, so 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 firstly, despite the names, I, I just wanted to reiterate that we have no ties or partnerships with the, the company Novo Nordisk. Uh Novo Nordisk is uh partly owned by the Novo Nordisk Foundation, and they have given a grant to the university uh that finances uh the center uh at its three nodes. So so therefore we, we do not have specific ties with the company. However, we do work with a number of different comp companies in order to ensure that research within the center can actually reach its full potential and make a difference for patients who are suffering from currently incurable conditions. And as such, we have projects that are considerably more translational compared to what you might actually find in a typical research institution. And with this in mind, I think we can potentially link our researchers better with industry uh, and provide aspects to them that they would not normally be exposed to. Uh, as such, we have uh, courses developed within innovation and, 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 and they get uh, a lot of knowledge within how to actually take uh, a key basic finding uh, all the way through the development phase into a product that could potentially end up in the shelf of a, of a pharmacy. Uh, so, so, so I think we have those aspects that can really make our researchers uh, very sought after, and we know they are uh, in industry. Uh, so, so that's terrific training, and it'll be interesting to see over the years where most of your trainees wind up. So, so we'll check in perhaps in a few years' time. Um, I suspect the foundation will as well. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, yeah. Uh, so, Melissa, coming from the Jackson Labs, I have to ask this next question. Uh, as you're aware, the enthusiasm around organoids and related technologies has led some to conclude that these uh, in vitro systems will soon replace animal models altogether. And uh, 
you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the United States around the new FDA Modernization Act, which removed the mandatory requirement for animal testing of new therapeutics prior to clinical trials. Now, my colleagues here have, have some strong views on this matter, as you might imagine, but I wonder how you see this issue as, as a pioneer of organoid technology. Yeah, again, I think this is a really important question to address. I'm really well aware of the general enthusiasm that organoid screening may improve the success of drug development pipelines and, and give us a more accurate in vitro human model before we move into clinical trial. And we've been we've been speaking that way for some time. And I think in many instances, however, I think the addition of such a screen is really an add-on. It's a plus. It's not going to be a replacement for animal studies, and I'll explain why. Uh, you can't do pharmacokinetic studies in a dish. You, you, how is a drug distributed? How is it broken down? What dose will be bioactive? Really almost impossible to answer in an in vitro model. So there, I think there's a long way that we hope to be able to go in terms of developing new drugs using disease models that are stem cell based, but ultimately there's probably still going to need to be an animal model in there. And I think that the, the development of any new drug is really um, potentially going to be better with some stem cell derived models involved. I think perhaps more importantly around accurately predicting tox. This is a really big point at which drugs might fail. They might go through an animal study, not be picked up as toxic, and then they go into man. So I think that's a major source of failure in the drug pipeline that I think stem cells may feel. But things like pharmacokinetic studies to move uh, a hit to a lead and then to get a lead into clinical trial is almost always going to need biological, biodistribution, pharmacokinetic studies, which is going to need that. And I, and I think um, I'm often asked about this, you know, do you support the abolition of, abolition of animal testing? Um, because, of course, now we're making all of our human kidney tissue using stem cells in a dish. But to be fair, our protocol rested on 30 years of studies in animal models. And as we move through this challenge of trying to use organoids to develop novel treatments for inherited kidney disease, we're still going to need animal models. So what I do think is it may well improve drug development. It may well reduce the use of animals uh, by having drag, drugs fail fast and early, but I think it's very unlikely we will be uh, removing animals from the safety profile of developing drug. Thanks for those thoughts. I, you know, I'm, I'm in a position now where I've been talking up in vitro systems for 30 years, and I have to explain to people some of their shortcomings. Um, yeah. So I say just, well, just pick up a textbook of medical physiology and read any chapter, and you'll kind of get an appreciation of how complex homeostasis is. But we are working uh, certainly to improve the the accuracy of some of the animal models that we work on. And I think yeah. there's, there's a lot of room for doing that. I think that it, you, it's always, it's like coming back to the standards and asking what well, can an organoid model. I'm constantly in the renal field saying, hang on a second, you can't model late onset uh, vascular disease in a non-vascular tissue. You know, there is a degree to which a physiological system has to be involved. So, you know, we've, we've just got to be a little bit practical about what, what we're peddling. Thank you. 
So we're going to finish up on on a kind of question for for the two of you about your own careers. So Melissa, you've have held and hold now significant leadership positions in scientific management. And Kim, I guess you're now really moving into that stage of your own career. Um, so I'm curious, how do you find a way to meet these important responsibilities while running your own laboratory? It's a question I've had to ask myself. And what's, a you know, honestly, a very competitive space. And how would you advise early career researchers who might one day uh, uh, have to take on the mantle of leadership? So Kim, we'll start with you. So, you know, it's 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 an it's an odd trade that we're in, you know. We we as 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 PhD students, you know, we we, we always selected for being good at uh, following uh, following the advice of a supervisor in order to 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 make to make the key findings that that will make us successful as a PhD student. Then you move into in in in, in into in, into the track of becoming a postdoc, where you have to then work significantly more independently. Uh, in, in in a somewhat selfish manner, in order to produce the the, the one or two key papers that will then allow you to become a, uh, a an independent researcher and run your own team. Uh, at that point, essentially, without any type of training, in order to run a team. Uh, with a big love for research, and I, I, I do, I do really love the research and the research questions that we are trying to address within my team. Uh, but moving on, you would also like to 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 influence other people and the research and research questions that they are trying to address, uh, and that of course also takes some time. So there, I found that it's very important to build up a team that I can trust and rely on, uh, both within my research team, but also within the administration here in the center. Uh, you know, we all know that there's only 24 hours a day, uh, and you cannot do everything. Uh, so you need to be selective, uh, but also efficient in what you do. Uh, moreover, I've tried to recruit a number of senior people within my team who can be responsible for certain research areas and also uh, quite a bit of the supervision. And, and I think we're also very fortunate here to have recruited a number of excellent people within our administration who can also support those aspects. Uh, and yeah, I think it's it's key to 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 be enabling these individuals via delegation of responsibilities, as I think that this allow them to grow uh, into also uh, future 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 leaders. Uh, for the early career researchers, uh, you know, they will at some point have to make the choice whether they want to move into leadership uh, beyond leading their own research team. Uh, and there, of course, you have to make sure that this is actually what you want as as you will be faced with uh, additional new challenges, uh, which will, of course, learn you something about yourself, but also about others. So the message is, it, as always, have the right people around you, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I think this is always key. Uh, Keep them on track. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Melissa, how about you? I'm fascinated to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah, well, I was going to launch into the kind of advice that I give young researchers, you know, which is things like, you know, work hard, think laterally, don't get boxed in by your technology, stay aware of the question that you're asking, um, find good collaborators to do the bits that you can't do. But I think one of the biggest, biggest challenges in, in, um, in surviving in science, succeeding in science and leading in science is communication. Um, and it's it's managing your teams. 
because you don't actually do anything. Your team does the work. And if you can't communicate with your team, with your peers and with the community, um, you won't succeed. Uh, I think communication is tremendously important uh, in most walks of life, but very much in science. And I think in terms of keeping a team you have to have respect, mutual respect and trust. And I have a great team in my lab where everyone knows the team and the sub-teams they're working in and the objectives of those sub-teams. And we are, um, it's very clear. It's very clear that I trust those people, I delegate to those people, and we work towards a goal. Um, but we don't teach that uh, when you're an undergraduate doing science. Uh, interpersonal skills, team management, leadership, they're not taught. Uh, and so you got to do a lot of learning by doing, um, probably not just in science, but quite particularly in science. Um, but you've really got to love it. Uh, it's a fantastic career. It's very few careers where you can go off in the direction that you choose. Uh, you know, it's like a beagle in a field. The beagle smells something. I'm going that way. But there's few people that actually get to do that in, in their career and do it for their whole lives. So I feel very privileged. And, and I, I sense that we're losing that a little bit. There's a lot of what about me? And there's a lot of, well, hang on, shouldn't I be given X, Y, or Z? You want to, you have to want to be there and you have to remember what a privilege it is to be there. Um, and and really be passionate about the science. Great answer. I, I tell people who want to come to the lab, well, don't do this unless you're absolutely obsessed with it. Yep. But if you are, there's nothing better. Well, I, I, I wish you both luck in this incredible experiment. It's very exciting. It'll be great to watch over the coming years. Uh, I wish you all the success and, and thanks for joining today. That's all we have time for. Again, thanks to thanks to our audience, thanks to our guests for sharing their stories with us today. This has been the Stem Cell Report. Thank you for listening. The International Society for Stem Cell Research is a global scientific society that promotes excellence in stem cell science and applications to human health. Our vision is a world where stem cell science is encouraged, ethics are prioritized, and discovery improves understanding and advances human health. To join us, visit www.isscr.org slash membership.